Amen. It's good to see you all this morning, Mars Hill. It's good to have you here. If you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're with us. We are studying through the book of Exodus. We've been in Exodus for a while. We're in the Ten Commandments, or sometimes called the Ten Words. And we're on the Sixth Commandment this morning, You Shall Not Murder. And that seems like that was pretty obvious, pretty obvious command, pretty easy one to keep. But as we see this morning, it may not be as easy as we think it is because it's more than just an outward, overt action of the hands. It's also an inward orientation of the heart. And we all have to wrestle with that. With each of the commands, there's different schools of thought. How do the commands break down? You know, there were two tablets. Were there five on one and five on the other? Were there four? The first four on one and the last six on the other? Regardless of how they might have been organized, there's a clear indication in the text that the first four are all about vertical honor of God, that we are created to, to esteem him and revere him and stand in awe of him and give him all of our honor. And when that's rightly oriented, how it was intended to be from the beginning, that will naturally, ought to naturally overflow into horizontal honor of one another. And where's the first place that begins? It begins in the family, as we looked at last week, and then it overflows into the world outside of the family. With each of the commands, and especially these last six commands, they, they're stated strongly in the negative. Eight, eight out of the ten commands are stated in the negative. Only two are positive, do this. Instead, the, the rest of them are don't do something. And it's interesting, and parents, you understand this, when you, when you outline what not to do, it's easier to say what not to do than all the hundreds of instructions on what you should do or could do or ought to do, and that's how the commands are laid out. And, and, and in this command, you shall not murder, it's in this negative, it's very brief, but everything it does is open up the doors for what we should do, what we could do, what we ought to do in terms of breathing life into the world. And that's what we're going to see this morning. It sounds simple enough but to say don't take life, but we're supposed to be people who breathe life. That sounds simple and that sounds fairly easy, but we have to be careful. It's not as easy as it seems. This morning we need to see what this command teaches. We'll see that first. And then secondly, we need to see first what it teaches about God and what it teaches about us. But then secondly, we need to see how it confronts us, how this command actually gets all up in our business and how Jesus expands and deepens the command in the New Testament. And that's the third point, which is how does Jesus fulfill this and how does he transform the command and transform hard, angry, murderous hearts. And that's where we're going this morning. Those are our three points, what it teaches, how it confronts us, and then how Jesus fulfills it and transforms our hearts. Let's look first at what it teaches, what this teaches about God and what it teaches about ourselves. In the original language, there's only two words here. There's, this is extremely brief, extremely succinct, which ought to tell us something about the emphasis of the command. In, in the original language, it simply says, no murder, no killing, period. Lo ratzak is the Hebrew phrase, the Hebrew word, and it, it's the word for murder, and it's only used 46 times in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is ratzak is the word for premeditated murder, intentional, willful murder. When it's used, that's the intent, that's the emphasis. But this is the first time that word's used in the Old Testament. On Mount Sinai, God speaks and says, no murder. And if you're an Israelite on Mount Sinai hearing this for the first time, you have no context for what that word means. You understand it to mean no killing, no murder. What are you talking about? Are you talking about premeditated murder? Are you talking about accidental murder? Are you talking about, what about war? What about just war? What about being encouraged, actually, and sent into situations? What about capital punishment? What, what, what? That's not answered in the text, not immediately. It's not clear. It's intentionally vague. Though we will later learn and, and later see in God's law, he, he does outline specifically words related to intentional premeditated murder using this word and, and some others. There's eight words for kill and murder in the Old Testament. God's law later does distinguish between premeditated and accidental 
and actually authorized. So, so we'll see, even in Exodus and then later in Numbers and Deuteronomy, we'll see there are actually in, in, in cases where, where killing, taking of life, is, is addressed with premeditation, intentional, willful, with accidental, with, with war, with capital punishment. Those are all outlined. But in the immediate text, that's not. And that's important for us to observe. That's important for us to see. That's important for us to understand. Because as an Israelite, that's not immediately clear. Why is it maybe general or why is it maybe vague in the immediate context? I think it's intentional. I think it's purposeful. Because from the beginning, God is life and everything he is about is giving life and breathing life. And that's being intentionally highlighted here in this text. God is life and his default starting position is life. We have to remember Genesis. The entire first chapter, what does God do? He creates. He breathes life in. In chapter 2, it's clear, it's explicit. He breathes life into man. The breath of life. He is creating. He is authorizing. He is establishing. He is breathing life. Everything God does in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is breathe life. He gives life at every turn. Life originates with him. It's authorized by him. It's under his authority. And death is a monstrosity of his good creation. Death is the consequence for rebellion against God. Death is the consequence that's introduced in chapter 3. But from the beginning, everything God is about is life. Therefore, taking life is to take things into our own hands, is to take things into our own matters into our own hands and to act in the place of God. It's to usurp God, to take the throne, the position of God. And what we see is that God is life from the beginning. It also teaches us something about us, though. How did he create us? In Genesis chapter 1, he created us in his image. Therefore, if he is all about life, we are also intended to be, from the beginning, all about life. We are intended to be people who breathe life and speak life. That's my daughter <laughs> speaking life into the room this morning. Thank you, Eleanor. Appreciate that. That's, that's the point here. We are created in his image, and we are created to to speak life and to scream life from the rafters and to breathe life into the world. That's how we were created from the very beginning. So our default position is supposed to also be life. And this is explicit in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. God puts us, uh, he creates us, and what does he say? Be fruitful and multiply, so make life. And then in Genesis chapter 2, he puts man in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says that we are put there to to, to keep and to cultivate the ground, so bring life from the ground. Everything that we are, everything that God is, is about life, intended to be about life. And that leads us to our second point, which is how this command confronts us. That's how things were intended to be. But that's not the world we live in, is it? That's not how... What we see on the news constantly, that's not what we experience in the in encounters and interactions. That's not how we drive down the road, is it? Breathing life into those people that cut us off. That's not the world that, that we live in. We live in a world of death and in a, in a world of murder and a world of anger and rage and malice that we express and that's expressed to us that we experience. We live in a broken, fallen world. Take just a few examples. We can see it in the news that we watch. The headlines are always all about death. They're not all about life. And not only are the headlines always about death and murder and anger and rage, it's also what sells. It's what shows we watch. Consider every Dateline episode you've ever watched. Men, husbands, it's always your fault. It's always a crime of passion. There's always a show about murder. It's not only in the headlines, it's everything that we intake. What about our politics? When you see politicians in our culture today, how do they engage? Are they breathing life into one another? 
No, when we reason and when we argue, that's not how we, we don't reason and argue our points or make our case anymore. No, we, we live in a world of outrage. Everything is demonization of the other person. We do everything we can to tear down, to crush, to destroy our opponents. Even Elmo is getting in on the action. I don't know if you saw the headlines this week, but Elmo, the Sesame Street, you guys know who I'm talking about? Elmo? Don't look so confused. Elmo, even this week, tweeted to his friend Zoe, angry about her pet rock, Rocco. Rocco has offended him in some way, and he's angry about it. Even Elmo is angry. All of this is the culture and the world that we live in. It's everything that we breathe. The world is not as it is intended to be. And that is because when we look in the Old Testament, we look in Genesis, the father of lies and the murderer from beginning. That's how Jesus describes him in John 8, 44. The father of lies and the murderer from the beginning deceived and caused Adam and Eve to distrust God's life-giving purposes deceived them into believing that they knew better, that they would make better gods. And when they take things into their own hands and come out from under the authority of God, they walk away from the one who is the author of life and walk into a culture and a world of death, of murder, of anger, of rage. And it doesn't take long to see this play out. The firstborn son of Adam and Eve is not the promised son that they thought they were going to have, that Genesis 3.15 promised that there would be one from the, the woman that would come and rescue us all. And that's not what they get in Genesis chapter 4. What they get is Cain, a murderer. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 3 to 7, it says this, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. That's important the way it's worded there. It says that he brought an offering. Is it? Meh. That's what it means. He brought an offering. And Abel also brought, what kind of offering did he bring? The firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. In other words, he brought the best of the best of what he had. Cain brought meh, an offering. And Abel brought an honorable offering to God. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So what does it say in the text? So Cain was very angry. The, the, the original language means furious, enraged, enraged, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, using the same wording again, why are you enraged? Why are you furious? Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Verse 7, if you do well, which means to live uprightly, if you live honorably, if you bring an honorable offer, offering to, to God, if you put yourself under the authority of God and recognize that he is God and worthy and deserving of everything, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And what does Cain do? Cain said to Abel, his brother, in the original language it says, let us go into the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. It's a different Hebrew word than murder that we see in Exodus 20, 13. It, this Hebrew word means that he willfully and maliciously took Abel's life. Knowingly, willfully, maliciously took his life. So what we see is that the result of rebellion against God is not life, it's death. It's separation from God, it's separation from within, it's separation from without. It leads to death, it leads to murder, and this has been the condition of man ever since. God is all about life, and we are willful rebels against God and the image of God in man. We're not about life anymore. We're not about breathing life and speaking life and loving to life. We're about anger, rage, malice, getting our way, and that ultimately leads to murder. Now, when we read a text like this, when we read a command like this, we, find, we come to this and we're like, finally, a command I don't have to deal with. <laughs> finally, something I'm off the hook on. I don't deal with murder. I'm not a murderer. 
That may be what you're thinking here. I, I'm not a murderer, or, or finally a command I can keep, or finally a command I haven't broken. But we don't get let off the hook so easily. We have to ask the question we've been asking throughout the commandments, which is, why? Why is this command even a command? Why do we need a command on murder? It, again, we started with, it seems like that's, that's obvious. But it's clearly not. We have to ask the question we've been asking for, for many of these commandments, which is what kind of people have to be told not to murder? What kind of people have to seriously be told, don't kill, don't murder, don't take a life? People like this, people bent on fulfilling their own kingdoms and getting their own way. People who see others as obstacles to their kingdom. People whose hearts are ripe with sinful self-centeredness. People who need to be told they're not God and can't act as God with the lives of other individuals without authority and authorization from God. People who need to be reminded that their fellow man was created in the image of God and therefore has intrinsic value regardless of his response to God. People who aren't given to life but death. People whose inward hearts are full of anger, rage, and malice that overflow outwardly into murder when they don't get their way. This is exactly what happens with Cain. Let's go back to the, the story of Cain in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. What does it say? Where did his anger, where did his murder overflow from? I already gave you the answer. <laughs> his murder overflows from his heart, from his anger. But Cain, for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry. He was furious. He was enraged. And his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? I want you to pay close attention. Not simply that the outward action of Cain murdering overflowed from his heart, but what is he angry about? Or more specifically, who is he angry at? The text indicates that it's anger towards God long before it's anger towards his brother. That he's actually angry at God. That, that it says that he brought the offering and offering and that God did not regard it. And so Cain was very angry and furious and his face fell. And long before it was a vertical, long before it was a horizontal murder, an outward action of murder, it was a vertical issue of his heart towards God. He was angry at God. And what is he angry about? God did not do what he wanted him to do. God did not act according to Cain's schedule, according to Cain's plan, according to Cain's intentions. God did not do what he wanted to do. Cain thinks he's God. And therefore, when you put yourself in that position as God, you can do whatever you want with your brother, with creation. If you're God, then you get to call the shots. And you can treat anyone else however you want. It's a vertical issue before it's a horizontal issue always. It's an inward issue long before it's an outward issue. His outward actions, murdering his brother, overflowed from his inward heart condition, specifically towards God. He was unable to deface God, so he defaced the image of God in his brother. He was unable to slay God, so he slayed his brother. What Cain really wants is God out of the way. And then he can do whatever he wants. Live how he wants, act how he wants, treat others how he wants. Cain wants to be God. It's the problem of sin, and it's the problem from the beginning with the fall. It's not simply that he's not getting his way, it's that he thinks he has his way is the only right way, even better than God. And I want you to, to catch this. I don't want you to miss this. This, this, this. There's a great book David Paulson wrote called Good and Angry. I'll reference it here in just a second again. But, but in that book, he was really helpful for me to understand the, the understanding of this emotion of anger. Anger is ultimately and sometimes referred to as the only moral emotion. In other words, anger it is, 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 a, is something that happens inwardly in our emotions, physiologically, and then outwardly into our bodies. It, it, we, we begin to get angry outwardly, and we act. And it was always intended from the very beginning to, to act according to, in line with, God's judgment. If it's a moral emotion, then it's always making moral judgments 
about what's right and wrong. And in Genesis 1 and 2, our attitudes, our decision-making, our measurement tools were all aligned with God, meaning we were angry, and when we got angry, we would get angry about what made God angry. We would stand with him. We would stand under him. But what happened in the fall was we rebelled against him. We thought ourselves better. And now what it means is our, everything is broken, including our emotions, including the emotion of anger. And our anger now is all mixed up and discombobulated with, with ourselves and what we think is right and wrong and what, what God says is right and wrong. And there, we can't, we're just in this constant wash tumbled up over we don't know which way is up in other words the measurement tool of what's right and wrong is broken and we think it's us we think it relies on us and that's the problem because we have a heart issue as a result of the fall our lives our judgments our anger are all out of tune with God, all out of alignment with God. We are now playing out of tune pianos and we don't even know it. Each of us constantly playing out of tune pianos and they're not out of tune with one another, they're out of tune with God. Out of tune with what he is and who he is which is all about life. Such that we get outraged over something so infinitely small and minuscule as someone cutting us off. In traffic rather than getting outraged over the holiness of God and someone offending that our measuring rod of what's right and wrong is broken and therefore our emotions and our expression of anger is going to be distorted and broken it is only the natural consequence in one perfect succinct example we see this in Matthew ch in Mark chapter 3 with Jesus and the Pharisees Jesus is, is healing on the Sabbath, and, and this, this man comes to him, and, and the Pharisees are watching him. They're waiting for Jesus to slip up, and, and Jesus asks this question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But the Pharisees were silent, and notice what it says. It might shock you. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. We have to ask a question. What is Jesus angry about and what does he do with that anger? What is he angry about? He's angry, he's grieved over their out-of-tune hearts. And what does he do with that anger? He heals a man. He breathes life into a man, into the world. He creates, he cultivates. He does not destroy with his anger. And it stands in stark contrast to the anger of the Pharisees and the anger of man. Look what happens in, in Mark chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, what are the, and down in verse 8, what do the Pharisees do? They're outraged that Jesus would do such a thing. You're going to heal, you're going to breathe life, you're going to make something whole that was fractured and fragmented and broken. How dare you? I can't believe that you would do this. And now what they do with their anger, it says in the text, is they look for a way to destroy Jesus. And the word for destroy means to crush him, to tear him apart, to kill him. What does Jesus do with his anger? He breathes life. What does man do with his anger? He looks to destroy. He looks to crush. Jesus' anger, and this is so important for us to see the contrast, Jesus' anger is directed to what is out of a line with the Father, and it always leads to life. Their anger, our anger, is always directed at, 99.9% .9 of the time is always directed at what is out of alignment with, them, with ourselves, and it leads to death. Long before Cain and the Pharisees have a behavior problem, they have a heart problem. And this is what Jesus takes us to in the New Testament. And this is what they want us to understand. Jesus makes this exact point in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 26, when he takes this commandment that we're studying this morning, and he deepens it. 
and expands it. And he actually puts us all on the hook. And he, and he talks in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, about how the outward action of the hands is ultimately inward out to the heart. He says uh, in verse five, chapter 5, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, he's deepening the command. He, he, he's expanding it. He's, he's taking us further. What that means, I say to you, means you understood it this way, but you misunderstood it. It's actually always intended to be about this. In Hebrews, we, we learn that Moses was always testifying forward, though he may not have always known. He was always pointing forward to Jesus and what ultimately the commands and the law was intended to point us to. And Jesus says, you understood it this way, which is a misunderstanding. It was an outward action that, that, that I was prohibiting. No, no, no. It was always intended to address the heart. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. There's, there's three things. It's progressing there, liable to judgment, liable to counsel, liable to the hell of fire. What is he doing here? It's profound. He's moving from the fruit, outward action, to the root, to the issue that causes the outward action. He's addressing that from the outside to the inside, and he says something astonishing, and I hope you don't miss it. What he says here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 26, is that both murder and the angry heart that cause it are liable to punishment, are deserving of eternal death. So you could go all your life and keep the command of not murdering and still miss the eternal goodness of heaven and a relationship with God because your heart was never transformed. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is where Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 26 comes from, what Jesus is doing repeatedly, repeatedly, and he says it just a few verses above Matthew 5, 21, I think it's in 5, 17, 18, he says that we need far more than religious knowledge like the scribes. We need far more than religious performance like the Pharisees. We need radically transformed new hearts, which is what Jesus came to give. We need new life because we're dead. And that's why Jesus came. He came to give us that life. If all you do is slap your hand and say, no, no murder, you haven't addressed your heart. If all you do is tell yourself, don't get so angry, what are you going to do? You're going to get more angry. If someone comes up to you and says, calm down, man, what are you going to do? I'm not, I'm not, what are you talking about? I'm not angry. You're getting angry. It always happens because it always overflows from our heart. We live in a world of murder because we have an anger problem, which is ultimately an issue that's rooted in a heart problem. It looks a thousand ways. It's excused often as frustration or irritation or impatience. Let's be honest. Let's, be, let's say what it is. Let's say what Jesus says it is. It's, an, it's a heart problem. And what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 is if we have a heart problem, we now have a punishment problem that needs to be addressed. James goes further, he expands this even further or outlines this even, even more clearly for us. He says in, in James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. He uses two different words for desire and passions. There it says passion, says desires. Both of them mean you have an inordinate desire for yourself and your way and your way is not being met and so it erupts in outward action of anger in the slamming of the hand or the fist or the punching of the wall or the the red face rage or the silent cold anger and it ultimately if left unchecked will lead to murder 
can lead to murder. You're, you're focused squarely on yourself, and that's what we learn here. What do we learn about ourselves as a result of this command? We're all on the hook. I mentioned David Powelson's book, Good and Angry. It's an, it's an excellent book, highly recommend it. And one of the best chapters is chapter two. And he asks this question, do you have a serious problem with anger? And the only word in the whole chapter is yes. You gotta love a chapter that only has one word in it. What is he saying? He's saying the same thing that, that we've been talking about. We all have a serious problem with anger, and I love the wording of it because we're all on the hook. We all have experienced anger done to us, and we've all experienced anger that we do towards others. All of it is an issue of the heart. We have an anger problem because we're not God. And according to Matthew 5, if we have an anger problem because we have a heart problem, then we also have a punishment problem. And we have to ask the question, what is our hope? What's the remedy? Again, is it slapping the hand? Is it willpower? Is it just don't be angry? I'm angry not being angry. Is that the answer? Or is it more? The gospel tells us it's infinitely more than that. And that leads us to our third point. How does Jesus fulfill and transform this command? This is so beautiful and so unbelievable. For, fortunately for each one of us, fortunately, by God's grace, though we are infinitely slow to grace and always quick to anger, we have a God who is slow to anger and long-suffering and steadfast in love, mercy, and grace. We have a God that's exactly opposite you and I. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, in Psalm 103 and Psalm 145, this is what the Scripture says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What are we learning here in this text, in all of those different references to the, that say the same thing? We have a God who has to be provoked to anger, but loves to lavish his grace. He has to be squeezed for anger to come out, pressed hard for his anger to come out, but his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love and his faithfulness are given freely, openly, quickly, lavishly. This is the God that we have. In fact, he's, his slow anger and his steadfast love is so obvious to many of the Old Testament writers that if you remember in the, in the book of Jonah, and the prophet Jonah, that's the very thing that angers Jonah. Do you remember the story of Jonah that the city of Nineveh was... was was full, as a huge city, full of sinful people, and God commissions Jonah to go to them to speak the message of life, to proclaim the good news of God who wants to be gracious and kind to them, and Jonah balks at it. He's angry at it. Instead of going 500 miles to Nineveh, which from where he was, he goes 2,500 miles in the opposite direction to Tarshish. That's how angry he is that God is a God slow to anger and, and, and grace. He doesn't see the, the irony and the confliction. Jonah, don't you realize that the same grace I'm calling you to give to, to Nineveh is the grace you're receiving, that you're breathing right now in getting on a ship to go 2,500 miles the other way? Jonah is so angry. He says, I know, this is essentially what he says, I know that they will repent and I know that you will be kind and merciful and gracious and that makes me angry. It's just unbelievable. This, the scriptures give us this raw picture of a person with such conflicting emotions and specifically anger. And that's exactly what angers jo Jonah about this whole thing. That he's, he's angry and that's exactly what happens. God does Ultimately, Jonah goes and God does ultimately relent. He's slow to anger. He shows them grace. He's merciful to Nineveh. They, they repent and he is gracious to them. And Jonah's furious. And he says this in Jonah 4.2. I knew 
I knew it. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's quoting Exodus 34, 6. I knew that's who you were. I knew you'd let him off the hook. What are you doing? You're not acting the way I want you to act. You're not acting according to my rules. You're not acting according to my agenda. You're not doing what I would do in this situation. You're being loving. You're being gracious. You're being merciful. You're being slow to anger. Jonah is not angry that these people are dying and will face the wrath of God. Jonah is angry that they're living and receiving his grace. Do you see the just astonishing, conflicting emotions here in Jonah? And God asks one of the best questions in all of the Bible. Maybe a question we need to ask ourselves with our own emotions, with our own anger. He says, do you do well to be angry? In other words, is your anger rightly placed, Jonah? Is it rightly focused? Is it rightly aligned, Jonah? Do you understand what you're saying? Do you see what you're, do you hear it? In order to teach Jonah, if you're familiar with the story, you remember, in order to teach Jonah, Jonah goes off in a huff and he sits in the, in the desert and he sits there and, and in the heat and, and he's in his tent and then God causes a plant to, to grow up over Jonah to, to give him shade. And, and the text says that he's exceedingly delighted. Before he was exceedingly displeased, it says in the text. Now he's exceedingly delighted. This plant grows up and then God sends a worm and the plant withers and crumbles and now Jonah is furious. He's angry and he says in the text, I'm so angry, angry enough to die. And God asks him a question again. He says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah, do you realize how, how ang your anger is so infinitely petty and worthless? You're angry over a plant. You're not angry according to what God is angry and, and, and upset about. These people are dying, and they will face the wrath of God unless someone proclaims the good news of the gospel to them. You're angry, Jonah, about your discomfort. You're not angry about what is discomforting to God. Your anger is about you, Jonah. It's not about God. And here's the wonderful good news of the gospel where Nineveh got a prophet that was reluctant to go, an angry, vengeful, upset prophet who was reluctant to carry God's slow anger and grace. We get a true and better Jonah. We get life himself who is slow to anger, abounding in grace and loves to lavish it on us. We get Jesus, who is the very presence of God's slow anger and grace. Where Jonah was reluctant to breathe life, the life of God, into these people, Jesus comes, who is life, breathing life into you and I. And this is what we see in the New Testament. We can just look at John. John chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus came as the the life, life himself, and the giver of life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 14, 6, he's the way, the truth, and the life. John 3, 16, God sent his son that we might have eternal life. Jesus says in John 10, 10, the thief comes, the liar and the murderer from the beginning, comes to steal, kill, and destroy, to crush, to pull apart, to break to pieces. But I've come that you might have life life abundantly. Jesus is life. He fulfills this command. He is life itself and he came to breathe life into you and I. I love visual pictures and I think C.S. Lewis captures the, 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 the picture of Jesus as life itself vividly in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've read the story, the white witch, the, the Satan figure in the story, is the one that, that has frozen everything. That everything is cold and dark and dead and turned to stone. The white witch is ruling the day. And one of the characters says, Lucy says, because of her enchantment, everything is winter and never Christmas. In other words, everything is dark and dead and cold and never full of life and joy and peace and happiness. 
But in the story, Aslan, the Christ figure, is on the move. At one point, another character, Edmund, hears about Aslan and he asks this question, won't the white witch just turn Aslan to ice-cold stone as well? And one of the characters responds. Listen to how they respond. This is so beautiful. C.S. Lewis captures the word pictures beautifully. Turn him, turn Aslan to stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no. Aslan will put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Aslan's on the move. And everywhere Aslan goes, life springs up. Jesus is on the move, and everywhere he goes, life springs up. He is life itself, and he has come to redeem us, to breathe life into us, and to breathe life into our emotions, and to transform us and our angry, cold, murderous hearts. To turn them from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, as Ezekiel says. To to move us from death to life, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. Jesus breathes life. How do we gain the life Jesus offers and experience this transformation of our emotions, our hearts? First, we have to recognize our hearts are icy. They're icy cold as a result of the fall. This is a condition that we're born in. We are born under the reign, the rule of the white witch, the enemy of this world. Our hearts are bent inwards on themselves, as we've seen, as we've talked about. We live for our own kingdoms, and therefore we're angry, angry when people don't do what we want them to do. And then we have to recognize, having recognized this and having repented of this, we have to look away from ourselves to Christ. We have to look away from ourselves who are dead to the one who is life. We have to plead for him to invade, to come and live the life that we desperately need and to die the death we desperately need, to come in and transform our hearts. We plead, we look to, we look beyond ourselves, outside ourselves to Jesus who is the perfect substitute. The scriptures teach us that he was tempted in every way. We looked at one reference, there's multiple references that tell us that he got angry, but we know in the scriptures that he was tempted in every way, that he did get angry on multiple occasions, but he always yet was without sin. He is the perfect substitute. Do you realize what that means? He lived the life that you could not live. Where we say, I don't get angry, and then someone cuts us off, and we wave at them happily, don't we? No. We fail every single time in so many thousands of ways. We say, I'm not going to do it today, and then our kids don't say what we want them to say or do what we want them to do or respect us in the way we want them to respect us or our coworkers don't do this or our spouses don't do this, and things just don't. And what happens? Instantly, we turn hot, blood, boiling red, angry at some minuscule nothing thing. What we need is a substitute who is angry in every way and yet never sinned, who is perfect, who lived the life we could not live. But Jesus did more than that. He died the death we deserve. And hear what that means. It means that the anger and the wrath that you and I deserve, it fell on Jesus. That you and I who pour out our anger and wrath on other people deserve God's wrath and anger poured out on us. But instead what we get is his grace poured out on us because why his anger and wrath was poured out on Jesus so that we could receive his grace where Abel got a murderer from the for an older brother we get a messiah where we see over and over again we deserve anger and wrath we get grace We get one who willingly died at the hands of murderers. That's how he died. And why? To rescue and redeem murderers. 
He willingly died at the angry mobs, at, the, at their angry shouts. He willingly laid himself down. And why? To rescue and redeem angry, murderous men and women. And why did he do this? So that we could have some theoretical understanding of redemption? So that we could have some theoretical understanding of salvation and transformation? No, so we could experience real change. He came to undo anger. He came to undo murder. He came to undo death. He came to undo sin. This is who Jesus is and what he has come to do. At the end of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, his character Aslan, was just Christ's figure. He explains what his death and his resurrection meant. And it says, he says this, It means that though the white witch knew some sort of deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawn, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack. And death itself would start working backwards. What's the table? The table in C.S. Lewis is, is the instrument of death. What's the table? It's the cross. That, that, that death itself, the hands of, death at the hands of murderers, death at the hands of angry men and women, is actually not defeat, but victory. It's our only hope of redemption. It's our only hope of transformation. In Jesus we find life, in him sin and death and all their byproducts are undone and transformed. And here's the truth of what that means for you and I. It means that you and I, if in Christ we are now wellsprings of life, carrying with us the aroma of life, proclaiming the message of life, everywhere we go, and so some questions. Is that true of you? Are you, are you life-giving in your words and actions towards others? Are you a person who fights and claws and is angry to breathe life into people? Into every area of your life? Are you intentional about speaking life into one another? Into broken marriages? Into broken families? into broken lives, into a broken world, into broken drivers that cut you off, into broken governments. That's who you are, brothers and sisters. That's who you are, church. That's who we are intended to be. As followers of Christ, our default starting position now is life. And here's what that means practically for you and I. Our hearts are now under new management. That means that that we, long before we act on our murderous intentions, long before we act on our anger, we bring our anger under authority. We bring our anger back under the rule and the reign of an infinitely gracious, infinitely loving king, and we say, are we right to be angry about this? Is this aligned with your anger? Is this aligned with your passion, emotions? Is this aligned with you? Am I right? Do I do well to be angry about this thing? 99.9% of the time, we're going to find No. <laughs> It doesn't, and so we repent. And that's why in Romans 12, 19, Paul says we leave room for God's vengeance, for his anger. Instead of acting, taking things into our own hands, acting, we entrust to God. So we come to him and we look and we, we, we align our anger to him, but we also, when we find that our anger is out of alignment with him, we say, I'm sorry, this is, this is out of alignment. It's, it's not anger that's honoring to you. It's not righteous anger. It's not anger that is pleasing to you. It's not anger about what matters to you. And I hand it to you and I entrust it to you. And I'm not going to act on it. Such that Paul says that we can be angry and not sin at that point. That there are things that we can be angry about. That are anger about things that God cares about and anger about things that have been happened to us. But when we entrust them to him, when we hand them over to him, we can be angry and not sin. As we end, I, I want to ask this question. What if there was just a small community of people that, that were all about life, 
and all about honor because a life-giving God deserving of all honor gave them life. What would it look like? What would it sound like? What would it feel like? It'd feel like spring had sprung. It'd feel like an oasis of life in the midst of a desert of death. It'd be so attractive. It'd be so interesting. It'd be so appealing because it would be like a spring flower in the midst of winter. That's really odd. I want that. That's what it would be like. Brothers and sisters, that's who you are individually. Church, that's who we are as a whole. We are intended to be the life of Jesus, speak the life of Jesus, smell like the life of Jesus, breathe the life of Jesus, preach the life of Jesus everywhere we go. Let's be that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for two words in the Hebrew, no murder, that captures our hearts, challenges us, confronts us, and points us forward to life itself. May we cling to the one who is life. If there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, may they understand the truth of the scripture. They are dead. They don't just have a heart problem, they have a punishment problem. And may they look away from themselves to their only hope, Jesus. May we be people of life, breathing life into one another. May our church be a, a place of life, a, a, a city of refuge where murderers can come. Angry, irrational, malicious sinners can come and have life breathed into them. May that be what we are. And may that be what our community experiences. May that be what our families experience. May that be what our world experiences as a result of what you've done in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.